0: I come to you in the name of the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Amen. I have a confession to make to you. I, I went on a bender of sorts this week. I, uh, I love the Magnificat. Part of it is uh, the memory of uh, countless even song services in the chapel at Seabury Western with uh, the darkening light and the candles lit for the office and on more than one occasion clouds of incense. And we sang the Magnificat every night because it's part of the evening service. But part of it is I, I I have a special affinity for Mary and so I always look forward to the fourth Sunday of Advent and especially to the Sunday where we get to hear and reflect on the Magnificat. So you might call me a Magnificat junkie and the bender I went on this week was I listened to 26 different versions <laughs> of choral settings of the Magnificat starting with Gregorian plain song and moving through medieval and late medieval polyphony and alternating plain song and polyphony and then up through the 19th century the great anglican choral writers for cathedral worship and up into the 20th century with Arvo Pert, the great Latvian composer, and with um, Sir John Tavener, the late English Eastern Orthodox composer. And I even ended with a couple of versions in odd languages like Wolof, one of the languages of West Africa in a chant sung by the monks of the Abbey of Kuru Musa. And I have to tell you, as much as I like the Magnificat, I think I overdosed. (laughs) (laughs) Because there were a couple that I started to listen to, I said, (laughs) nah. So if I listened to those, it would be up closer to 30 Magnificats. Why do I do that? Because I love the words of the Magnificat. They speak to me in a way that very few other passages of scripture do. They they touch something deep in my soul that centers me both in my relationship to Jesus and to my call to be a minister of the gospel in the world. And that's what all of us are called to be, not just me as an ordained priest, but all of us who are Christians are called to be followers of Jesus, to let him be birthed in our souls and our hearts, and to go out into the world carrying the good news that Jesus gives us, not only in word, but in deed. So I want you to think for for a minute or two with me about the Magnificat. It, It really comes in two parts, and I've noticed, I listened to some what I would call praise song versions of the Magnificat, and they all focused only on the first part. They got as far as, you know, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day forth, all generations will call me blessed. And that's where they stopped. And then I read some scripture commentaries. On the second part of the Magnificat, he has cast down the mighty from their thrones, the rich he has sent away empty. You know, he's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And I realized that there are two very distinct parts of the Magnificat, and that we, by virtue of our form of faith, whatever moves us in our faith, we seem to focus. More on either the first part, the giving praise, or on the second part, the call to follow a God who says, you better watch out because the world's going to get turned upside down at some point. And I started to wonder, which is the real Magnificat? And then I listened to Arthur's wonderful sermon from the Feast of Christ the King, and I realized it doesn't have to be one or the other. They can both be the true Magnificat. Each of them can call us into our relationship with God and with our fellows in a way that is truer, I think, to who Jesus was. Because remember... Jesus got in a lot of trouble for saying exactly the things that Mary proclaimed in the Magnificat. You know, if he was a juvenile delinquent, look at where he got it from. It was from his mother Mary. She was a rabble-rouser. And she raised a son who was a rabble-rouser. And thank God. Because we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him. So I want to invite you think about each part separately with me. There's the part that tells us that God works through specific people in specific places to do marvelous things. God picks unlikely people to be his chosen ones to bear fruit in the world for him. And that is a powerful reminder that, no, none of us is the ever-blessed Virgin Mary, but each of us has been created by a God who looks at us and says, Ah, you are good. You are good. I chose you. I choose you to be one of mine. And we all need to hear that. We all need to feel that God created us to have a part in his plan for the creation and for the world. But then we have the part that reminds us that it's not enough just to sit and pat ourselves on the back and feel blessed and chosen and wonderful that we actually have to do some of the work that Christ called us to do. Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the poor and those in prison, um, caring for the widows and the orphans. And I want you to know that that second part of the Magnificat is pretty radical stuff. If you really stop and think about it, it's, it's the first century version of workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. If you don't know what I'm doing, that's the final paragraph of the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels. And yes, you can tell a little bit about my background that I can quote it by memory. But these words are so radical that Did you know that the East India Company, when they were working in India and what is now Pakistan and Bangladesh, they removed the Magnificat from the evening prayer service because they thought it would create a discontented population. In Argentina in the 70s, during the Dirty War, when thousands of people, mostly young people, were disappeared, the Madres de los desparecidos, the mothers of the disappeared, who would gather every Friday in the Plaza del Mayo, the Plaza of Independence in Argentina, They would gather with signs asking where their children were and they would recite the Magnificat. And so the Argentinian government outlawed it. You may not recite the Magnificat in public. And in Guatemala, a country dear to my heart, in the 1980s, after there was the start of the really serious part of the Civil War there, the Guatemalan government did the same thing. They told people they could recite it in church, but not in public. So these words that we shared out loud today can be dangerous words. And we need to recognize that God's given them to us not to send us to the barricades with pikes and flaming torches. But To go out into the world and gently and quietly and persistently work to change the parts of our world that need changing. So I offer you today a a book with a central spine. I offer you the spine is the Virgin Mary and on the left hand page are My Soul Proclaims the Greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. On the right hand page are, He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has come to the help of His servant Israel, for He has remembered His promise of mercy. If you want to truly take in if you truly want to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest what the Magnificat has to teach us, you can't choose just the pretty part or just the rabble-rousing part. You have to hold them together. And you have to let yourself be comforted and discomforted in order to understand who Jesus calls us to be who he was and who he wishes us to be in his name in the world. That's the message of Christmas as much as the pretty little baby in the manger. So I hope here at the end of Advent you heard the prophets, you heard the call of repentance that Mary preached about on the second Sunday, you journeyed with Mary to Here, John the Baptist, last Sunday. And today we end up with Mary, inviting us to become who we were created to be. In Jesus' name. Amen.